Amen. I invite you to bow our heads with me as we begin with prayer tonight. Thank you so much, Lord, for being such a good God, for loving us, for dying so that we could live. And Lord, we thank you that you not only died for us, but you, you rose again and you ever live right now in the sanctuary above to make intercession for us as our great high priest. Lord, help us to understand that reality more deeply tonight as we study this prophecy. And Lord, I know that tonight's message is huge. As we tackle it tonight, we pray for wisdom. We pray that you give us an engaged mind. Make our minds like a sponge, dear God, that we might soak up every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Give us understanding and comprehension. And my Father, I just pray that you please give me wisdom to know how to share this message. Make it simple and clear. Please, dear Lord, I don't know how to do that. So please give me your wisdom. Give me your words. And we thank you so much for what we're going to experience tonight in this study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Our message tonight, Revelation's two-minute warning, is one that is, has, has caused many people to be, perhaps feel overwhelmed because it's a lot of information. And it's not a message that is, that, that is easily grasped by the casual listener. And so I want to invite you, friends, tonight as we open God's Word, don't just sit back casually and listen, but tonight's message will require for us to really engage our minds. I hope you brought your thinking caps, because we need to use those tonight. We're going to cover a lot of information, but we will be repeating and enlarging over and over again so that we can understand and see clearly what it is God is wanting to reveal to us. And so as we jump into it, I just want to ask that you please pray for me, that God would give me wisdom to know how to share it, and uh, be praying for yourself as well, that God will give you wisdom to comprehend it. Take your Bible and open with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. <clears throat> Revelation, chapter 14. I hope you brought your notebooks. Revelation 14. And as you're turning there, let me quickly tell you where I got the title from. What is this two-minute warning we're referring to? Well, for those of you who watch football, you know what the two-minute warning is. Isn't that right? It's the last two minutes in the game. And whenever a game enters into the last minutes, the intensity kicks up a notch. There's a sense of urgency. If you're in the lead, you know you have minutes left to hang on. If you're on the losing team, you know that you need to do drastic things in order to try to take the lead. In the last few moments, every little movement counts. Every decision is made with the end in mind. There's no room for mistakes because in the last few minutes, anything can happen. Just like what we saw in this last Super Bowl, isn't that right? Well, friends, do you know that in the same way, the Bible gives to us a proverbial two-minute warning, not a literal two minutes, but a proverbial two-minute warning, letting us know that time is almost finished, that the redemption story is almost done, and it's a prophecy that deals with time, letting us know that Jesus is about to come. 
And I want you to notice this two-minute warning, but before we do that, I want us to first ask and answer, what event marks the end of time? What event marks the end of time? The answer is found in Revelation 14 and verse 14. It, notice what it says. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud sat one like unto the Son of Man, having in his, on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a what? sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. For what is ripe? The harvest of the what? Friends, what we're reading here in Revelation 14, verse 14 and 15 is the description of the end of time. And the event that marks it is the harvest that will take place when Jesus returns. The Son of Man riding on the white cloud is none other than King Jesus. He's wearing a crown because He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. But He's also holding a sickle in His hand because when Jesus returns, He is coming as a kingly farmer coming to reap the harvest of the earth. And friends, I don't know about you, but I want to be ripe for His picking. Amen? Jesus is not coming back for sour people. He's coming back for people who are sweet, ripened with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, and I want my life to be a sweet taste in the mouth of Jesus. And so this is harvest time. The earth is ripe, and that word harvest is not, an end, it's not a beginning word, it's an ending word, and the harvest will take place when Jesus comes. This is the event that marks the end of time. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. Jesus said in Matthew 13 verse 39 that the harvest is the what end of the world and so the event that marks the end of time or the end of the world is the harvest and this will take place when Jesus returns the second time that's the event that marks the end if that's clear would you please say amen, amen. now before Jesus comes he is going to send a message of mercy to the whole world to help people get ready for the harvest. This is the proverbial two-minute warning that we're going to study tonight. What is this message? All we have to do is read the context because the previous verses before Revelation 14, 14, the previous verses describe an end-time, everlasting, worldwide, global gospel good news message that's given to the whole world that helps people be ready for the harvest. Let's read it now, Revelation 14, beginning with verse 6. This is what leads up to the harvest. In fact, this message is what causes the world to be ripe and ready for the harvest. It's an end-time preparation message. Notice what it says, Revelation 14, verse 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting, what is that next word? gospel. And friends, that word gospel does not mean bad news. It doesn't mean scary news. It's not doom and gloom, but the word gospel literally means good news. I want you to keep that in mind, that tonight's message is a good news, get happy, get excited message. It's not a scary message. It's gospel, the everlasting gospel. And then notice to whom this message is given to. Having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So this worldwide message is going to go to everyone. And the reason why is because God so loved the world. 
He's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to be ready and to be ripened for the harvest that takes place in verse 14. And so in love and in infinite compassion, he's sending his angels, his messengers, to the whole world, giving them a message that will help them get ready for the harvest. Now what is this message? Verse 7, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come. For the what? Now, friends, that word hour, what is an hour? An hour is a measurement of time. Isn't that right? So a part of this worldwide global gospel message that's given before Jesus comes is a worldwide call telling us that the hour or the timing of God's judgment is come. Now, when it says is come, what tense is that, past, present, or future? That's present tense. So notice, friends, that just before the harvest, just before King Jesus returns the second time, the world is going to hear a message about God's judgment, the timing of His judgment arriving into this world is come in the present tense before Jesus actually comes. Notice, friends, God's judgment happens before Jesus actually comes in the clouds. Now, this expression, the hour of God's judgment is come, is the proverbial two-minute warning that we're going to unlock tonight. Not a literal two minutes, and it's not referring to when Jesus comes, but it's referring to when the judgment of God has come. Now, in the Christian world today, there are very few people who are talking about God's judgment. And one of the reasons is because most people think that it's a scary, bad news and gloomy message. And unfortunately, most people preach the message of judgment in, though, in that context. But remember, friends, it's a part of the everlasting gospel, which means good news. You see, the message of judgment in the Bible is one of the most misunderstood topics in all of Scripture. Most people think it's bad news, but rightly understood we're going to see that the message of judgment is one of the most beautiful messages in the Bible. It truly is good news. It's a get happy, get excited message because it magnifies the beauty of King Jesus, who is also our lawyer and our judges we'll see tonight. And so keep that in mind, friends. Now, I want you to notice, we're going to unlock this about when did the hour of God's judgment come? When will it come? Well, notice, first of all, what the Bible says concerning the timing of judgment. Please write these scriptures down. Acts 17, 31, the Bible says, because God has appointed a what? Now, a day is also a measurement of time. So, God has appointed a day or a time in the which He will do what? Judge the world in righteousness. Is God going to judge the world? Yes or no? But does God have a specific time in mind in which He will begin to judge? Yes, He has appointed a day, and we're going to see tonight that He appointed that day directly in prophecy, and He's actually revealed it to us. God has appointed a specific time in mind in the which He would judge the world. Now, let's narrow this time frame down and see what the Apostle says in Acts 24 and verse 25. The Bible talks about Paul before the Roman king, and he, and he reason of righteousness, temperance, and judgment. What are these two words? What tense is that? Future tense. 
to come means it's not yet come. It's future tense. And so for the Apostle Paul, during the days of the early apostolic church, the timing of judgment was still that something was going to come in the future. It did not happen during the days of the Apostle Paul. It was still a futuristic event. Notice another one. Romans chapter 14, verse 10 through 12. It says, for we shall. Now that word shall, what tense is that? As future. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. The Bible tells us that we're all going to stand before God's judgment throne to give an account. But for the days of the early apostolic church, when the book of Romans was written, that time was still a future event. It did not happen during the days of the early apostolic church. It was still future. If that's clear, please say amen. But then when you go to Revelation chapter 14, the angel says, it's here. It's no longer a future event. The hour of God's judgment is come. So here's the point, friends. Watch me carefully. During the days of the early apostolic church, judgment was still future to come. But sometime just before the harvest, when Jesus comes, sometime just before the end, the angel says, it's here. Therefore, God's judgment must happen sometime prior to his return. And that's important. You know why? Most people think that judgment takes place when Jesus comes. And judgment is executed when he comes, but there is an investigation that takes place before he comes an investigative judgment. And this is made abundantly clear when you read Revelation 22 and verse 12. Please write it down. Jesus says, And behold, I come quickly. He's not yet come. He's coming quickly. And he says, My reward is what? With me to give every man according as his work shall be. Now, friends, think about that very carefully. When Jesus is about to come, he says, my reward is already with me. If the reward is already with him, that means the reward has already been determined. Determined by what? Every man's work. Therefore, if by the time Jesus comes, the reward's already determined, that implies very clearly that there first had to have been an investigation of individual's work or life in order to determine who receives which reward by the time Jesus comes. Are you with me? In other words, an investigative judgment begins sometime before Jesus comes to give re rewards according to our works. It was a future event during the days of the early apostolic church, but just before the harvest, it's come, and then Jesus comes with those rewards according to the works. And tonight we're going to find out when exactly that took place. When did this judgment hour begin, this proverbial two-minute warning? To answer that, we're going to study the longest time prophecy in all of the Bible, a prophecy that spans over 2,000 years. But before we look at the timing of judgment, let's first ask the question, where does judgment take place? And remember, the book of Revelation is built upon the foundation of the Old Testament scriptures, especially the book of Daniel. So we go to Daniel chapter 7 
to find out when did the hour of God's judgment begin. So notice, turn with me quickly to Daniel chapter 7. That's page 887 if you're using our seminar Bible. Daniel chapter 7, page 888. <clears throat> and it's interesting, the word Daniel means God is my judge. That's what it means. And it's interesting that Daniel was the one that received the visions of the judgment of God. We studied this at the 5 o'clock message. Let's just review and repeat before we enlarge. Daniel 7 and verse 9. If you're there, would you please say amen? I beheld till thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, the hair of his head like the pure wool, and, excuse me, yes, and his throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the, what was said? Judgment was said, and the books were opened. Here we find Daniel in prophetic vision. He sees the throne of God, and upon that throne, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, sits upon the throne, presiding as a judge. What Daniel is seeing is a courtroom scene, friends. It says, judgment was set, the books are open, the thousands upon thousands ministering to him. These angels, they represent the witnesses in this courtroom scene. The books containing the record of the lives of every individual in, on planet Earth are open, being examined. That's the evidence in this courtroom scene. And we know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And so we have all the components for a courtroom scene, and it's happening in heaven. Specifically, it happens at the throne of God. Where does judgment take place, friends? in heaven at the throne of God. And so you have a courtroom scene open before you. You have the judge, you have the evidence, you have the witnesses, Satan is the accuser, and at first you start to get nervous because uh, you don't see a lawyer. But thank the Lord, the lawyer shows up in verse 13. Notice what it says. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Here we find the lawyer approaches the bench. He is called the Son of Man. It's Jesus, friends. He plays the part as the attorney, the lawyer in this courtroom scene. And friends, what is so comforting to me is that when Daniel saw this, he called him not just son of God, he called him the son of man. You know why? Because he is the one that walked in our shoes. He was the one that became human to, to, uh, to understand the weaknesses we go through. The Bible says he took upon himself sinful flesh, he came and was tempted in all points like as we are. 
And because he's walked in our shoes, he understands our, our weaknesses. He is able to rightly represent us before the throne of God in heaven. I'm so thankful that at the throne of God, where, where perfect purity presides, there is one there that stands to represent us. And he's not just son of God. He's the son of man. He understands what we go through in life. Amen? And that's... One of the reasons why judgment is not bad news, it's good news, it's gospel. Can you say amen? And so we find Daniel 7 tells us where judgment takes place, in heaven at the where? Throne of God. And when you follow the context, go to the next chapter, Daniel chapter 8 tells us when the hour of God's judgment actually began. And so we go now to Daniel 8 in verse 14 we find a time prophecy pointing to the hour of God's judgment. And notice what it says, Daniel 8, 14. And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days. The word day, a day is a measurement of time. So this is a time prophecy. Now, is it specific? Yes, 2,300 days. Then what's going to happen? Shall the sanctuary be cleanse. So after 2,300 days passes, it says then the sanctuary is going to be cleansed. Listen, friends, this time prophecy is the answer to the question, when did the hour of God's judgment begin? If we can understand the time prophecy, 2,300 days, that points to the cleansing of the sanctuary, we will know the exact date of when judgment in heaven actually began. Now, some of you might be scratching your heads and wondering, well, what does this have to do with judgment? I mean, the word judgment isn't even found in that verse. What does the sanctuary have to do with judgment and the timing of judgment? Friends, listen, the cleansing of the sanctuary has everything to do with judgment. And here's the reason why. Remind me, where does judgment take place? In heaven at the throne of God. But tell me, where is the throne of God? It's in the sanctuary. And that's what the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, 12. Write it down. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. So when the Bible refers to the cleansing of the sanctuary, it's also referring to the timing of God's judgment when God will begin to investigate the books containing the records of the lives of individuals to prepare a people for the harvest, the second coming of Christ. And we saw this in our previous presentation. Remember how we went through the sequence of the kingdoms? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome, then the Antichrist, and then judgment. That was the sequence of, of, of the vision God gave to Daniel. And do you remember in Daniel chapter 7, after the Antichrist little horn, throne judgment. But then Daniel chapter 8, God repeats and enlarges. But instead of saying clearly about the throne judgment, he talks about the sanctuary. Why? Because these two things are indelibly connected together. Here's the point. The only way we can understand the timing of judgment is if we first understand what the Bible means when it refers to the cleansing of the sanctuary. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the topic of judgment on the shelf. Put it aside for a moment. And we're going to pick up this topic about the cleansing of the sanctuary. 
when we can understand what the cleansing of the sanctuary means, when we can understand that, then we pick up the topic of judgment and it will make logical, congruent sense. Are you with me? All right, so now let's pick up this topic. What does the Bible mean when it refers to the cleansing of the sanctuary? Let's review what we studied last night. In Exodus 25, verse 8, God said, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And that sanctuary that was put up by Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness was to be a visual aid of the plan of salvation, an object lesson, a prophecy that would point to the ministry and the work of Jesus Christ. Everything that happened in the sanctuary was to teach man about the plan of salvation. And here's what happened. If we lived in Old Testament times and wanted to be forgiven of our sins, we would have to bring a spotless lamb or animal to the sanctuary. We would enter into the courts of the sanctuary, and the priest would meet us there at the altar of sacrifice. We would then take that little barnyard animal that, 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 that we raised up ourselves, and, and we would then put our hands on the head of that animal, and we would confess our sins to God. And now our sins are being transferred to the animal. The innocent animal bears the guilt, condemnation, and sin. And then after we're done confessing our sins, we would have to take a knife and with our own hands cut the throat of that little innocent animal, cutting the juggler vein, causing the blood to flow. And the priest was there with the bow to catch all the blood, and that little innocent animal would die so that guilty man could be forgiven and live. And it was terrible, friends. Blood continued to flow every single day in the sanctuary as people were coming for the forgiveness of sin. And the reason why God said for his people to do this is because, as I mentioned last night, because God was wanting to communicate to us that sin is not good. It's terrible. It's ugly. It's gory. It's bloody. The wages of sin is death. Sin causes so much pain. And when those sinners had to kill this little innocent animal that many times they raised up themselves. They would see the pain and they would realize, man, my sin causes this. What God was trying to do is to put in their hearts a hatred towards sin when they see what sin causes. And friends, remember, every animal that was slain typified Jesus. You see, it was our sins that nailed him to the cross. Our foolish choices caused God so much pain and suffering and agony and death. And that's what the slaying of the lamb would represent. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Why? Because sin is the breaking of the law and the wages of sin is death. And so animals were slain, but then notice what happened. After the animal was slain, it would then be put upon the, uh, the brazen altar, consumed by fire. Then the priest would take the blood of the animal, symbolic of the sin. He would then go into the, 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 the sanctuary itself, the first part of the sanctuary, which was called the holy place. It was called the what? In the holy place, there was the table of showbread, the candlestick, and the altar of incense. We talked about that last night. What the priest would do, he would take that blood, symbolic of the sin into the holy place he would then before the veil 
sprinkled the blood upon the veil. He would put also some on the horns of this altar. Now, when he sprinkled the blood, symbolic of the sin, upon the veil, what happened was the record of that sin was now placed in the sanctuary. And there it remained throughout the whole year. So it's kind of like this. Watch me carefully. The sin is transferred from the sinner to the animal, to its blood. The blood is now taken into the sanctuary, sprinkled on the veil, and so now the record of that sin is where? In the sanctuary. This is what caused the sanctuary to be soiled, to be dirty. Now, if the sanctuary is soiled, it now must be cleansed. And that's what the cleansing of the sanctuaries is referring to. And so this happened every single day, friends. The Bible, it, it was actually called the daily service. What was it called? Every single day. Blood, symbolic of the record of sin, continued to flow into the sanctuary. The record had accumulated there in the sanctuary. So listen, the sinner was forgiven, yes, but the record of his sin was still in the sanctuary. And because the record was there, the sanctuary itself had to be cleansed. And so when was it cleansed? It was cleansed once a year on what the Bible calls the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This was the yearly service in which the sanctuary itself was cleansed. And that word atonement, if you break it up, it simply means at one meant. It was the day in which the record of the sin was wiped out and blotted out of the sanctuary. It was the day that the people of God received full at one meant with their God. And on the day of atonement, which Hebrew scholars call a crisis of confession and repentance, on this special day that happened once a year, the high priest, not just the priest, but the high priest, would take the blood of the sacrificial animal. And he would not just go into the holy place, but he would go beyond the veil into the most holy place of the sanctuary. And in that most holy place, there was only one article of furniture. It was called the Ark of the Testament or the Ark of the Covenant. What was it called? And that Ark of the Covenant was a chest-like piece of furniture overlaid with gold. On the inside of the chest was the Ten Commandments, the holy law of God. Just above that was a solid slab of gold that covered the chest. That solid slab of gold was called the mercy seat. What was it called? The mercy seat. Why? Because on the mercy seat sat the Shekinah glory, which was the visible manifestation of the glory of God between the two angels. And that mercy seat where the Shekinah, where the Shekinah sat, it represents the throne of God. Where does judgment take place? At the throne. And in the most holy place of the sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant represented that throne. And just below the mercy seat, the Ten Commandments. What is the foundation of God's throne? His holy law, friends. And so what happened was on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go in the veil into, into the most holy place, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. That act of sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat, listen, listen, that act is what cleansed the sanctuary from the record of sin that had accumulated there throughout the year. That's what the Bible means 
when it refers to the cleansing of the sanctuary. And by the way, by the way, the mercy seat, that's the throne of grace. I'm so thankful that God's judgment throne is called a throne of grace. How about you? God's judgment seat it's not called a justice seat, even though it is. It's called a mercy seat. And that's another reason why judgment is not bad news. It's good news. Amen? It's called a mercy seat, a throne of grace. And that, on, only once a year, the high priest would go into that place. Sprinkling the blood is what cleansed the sanctuary of the record of sin that accumulated throughout the year. Now, let me explain it like this. How often do you take a shower? Every day, I hope. Amen? It's a good idea to get cleansed daily. Taking a shower is a daily service. But every now and then, you ought to clean the bathtub. Isn't that right? <laughs> because what happens if you don't clean the bathtub? You might be cleansed. But if you don't clean that bathtub, stuff begins to grow, and it, and, and it looks terrible, right? You have mildew and buildup. You see, friends, listen, the daily service was like a, the sinner was cleansed. He was forgiven. It was like taking a shower. But the record of his sin was still in the sanctuary. It was still in the bathtub. And so on the yearly service, it was like the cleansing of the bathtub itself. Does that make sense? Now listen, you ought to clean the bathtub more than once a year. But do you understand the illustration? How many of you use computers? Now there's something that's very helpful on the desktop of your computer that is there for you to get rid of things that you don't, no, no longer need. If you have some things on your desktop, if you want to cleanse your desktop, you have that little thing there and you just, you just drag and drop it right there. What's that called? The trash bin, isn't that right? Or the recycle bin, whatnot. Now, you can put your files that you no longer want, pictures, files, you drop it into the trash bin, and your desktop is cleansed. But where's the record of those things? It's still in the trash bin. And it's not completely blotted out until you empty the trash bin. In the same way, the daily service, when the, when the people would confess their sins upon the lamb and, 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 and the lamb was slain, that was like cleaning the desktop. But the yearly service on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest sprinkled the blood upon the mercy seat, was like emptying the trash bin itself. That's what it means, friends, when it refers to the cleansing of the sanctuary. If that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, what does this have to do with judgment? Everything, and here's why. Because the Day of Atonement was not just a day of cleansing. It was also a day of judgment. How so? Let me explain. Ten days before the Day of Atonement would arrive, trumpets would sound in Israel, calling God's people to begin to fast and pray and afflict their souls and search their hearts to make sure that all their sins were confessed of and repented of and placed into the sanctuary so that it could be blotted out on the Day of Atonement. It was a crisis of confession and repentance. And notice what it says. Leviticus 16, 29, and 30. In the tenth day of the seventh month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all. For on that day the priest shall make atonement for you 
to cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. And so God's people, if they wanted to receive the atonement, if they were going to receive full cleansing and pardon forgiveness, what do they have to do? They had to afflict their souls. They had to search their hearts. They had to make sure that their sins were confessed and repented of. And all those who were doing that benefited from what the high priest was doing. As the high priest was cleansing the sanctuary from the record of sin, people on the outside of the sanctuary were working in harmony with their high priest by cleansing the soul sanctuary of sin by confession and repentance. And all those on the outside who worked in harmony, they were the ones that benefited by what the priest was doing for them. Are you with me, yes or no? But what happened to those who were not working in harmony on the Day of Atonement? What happened to those who were careless and just wanted to hold on to sin and, and just do their own thing? For them, it wasn't a day of cleansing, but rather it was a day of judgment. Notice what would happen in Leviticus 23, verse 29 and 30. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be what? Cut off. Now, friends, I want you to write that expression down. Cut off is a judgment expression that happens on the Day of Atonement. Those who are not afflicting their souls, searching their hearts, confessing their sins, it says they were cut off from His people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among His people. And so the Day of Atonement, friends, was a day of cleansing for those who are praying and afflicting their souls, but it was also a day of judgment for those who are not praying and searching their hearts and repenting to God. They would be cut off, the Bible says. So we find that a day of atonement was a day of cleansing for the righteous who are praying, but a day of judgment for the wicked who are living carelessly. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Now, what does this have to do with the end of time? Everything. You know why? Because, friends, listen, the day of atonement that happened once a year was to be an object lesson to teach us about the final judgment in heaven at the true sanctuary, in the true sanctuary, at the throne of God in the last days. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, how does this earthly sanctuary teach us about heavenly realities? Here is how the Old and the New Testament are in perfect harmony with each other. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, the apostle makes the application. Now listen, friends, this is after the cross and after the resurrection. And the Bible tells us that there is still significance with that sanctuary. But which one? Notice Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 2. It says, we have such a high priest who is, what is that word right there? Seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Do you see, friends? The Bible is saying that just as there was an earthly sanctuary, there's a heavenly one. And the heavenly one is the true tabernacle, is the true sanctuary. And Jesus is the high priest sitting upon the, the true throne in heaven. This is after the cross, after the resurrection, and yet there is still significance with the sanctuary, but, but, but the one that's in heaven. Now notice another one, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. It says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are what? 
copies of the true. In other words, the one, the, 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 the earthly sanctuary that was made with hands was simply a copy of the true sanctuary. Which one? But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In other words, here's the point. Everything in the earthly sanctuary was to foreshadow the heavenly reality. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of the throne of God. The earthly Day of Atonement was an object lesson to teach us about the final Day of Atonement, the heavenly Day of Atonement. And just as there was an earthly high priest that cleansed the earthly sanctuary, so too we have a heavenly high priest that is cleansing the heavenly sanctuary in the final judgment for us in the last days. Jesus is the high priest, friends. He's not just the lamb. He's also the high priest. He is the lamb and the priest. And the Bible teaches clearly that he would go over the records, the books containing the, the, the record of the lives of individuals, and he would give atonement and cleansing to those who are praying for it and pleading for it, but it would also be judgment for those who could care less about it. This is what the Bible means when it talks about the cleansing of the sanctuary. Now, friends, if you understand just a little bit about the cleansing of the sanctuary, would you please say amen? amen? So now that we understand the cleansing of the sanctuary, how it's referring to the Day of Atonement, which is the day of cleansing and judgment, now we can go back to the time prophecy and, uh, and study that part of it to find out when did this final Day of Atonement begin? When did the hour of judge, God's judgment take place? And the Bible gave us a specific time prophecy in Daniel 8, 14. And he said unto me, this is the angel Gabriel, which angel? Speaking to Daniel, he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Question, which sanctuary was the angel Gabriel referring to? Was he referring to the earthly sanctuary or was he referring to the heavenly sanctuary? He had to have been referring to the heavenly sanctuary because the earthly sanctuary was in ruins during that time. He wasn't talking about the earthly one. It was in ruins. The Babylonians came and destroyed it. It had to have been referring to the heavenly sanctuary being cleansed and thus the final heavenly judgment just before the harvest. Now, how could that be? Well, the Bible makes it clear in verse 17 of Daniel chapter 8. The angel Gabriel says to Daniel, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So friends, this is an end time prophecy. But how could it be an end time prophecy if it's only 2,300 days? That's a little over six years. That would have been fulfilled during Daniel's time. How could it be an end time prophecy? Now I want to introduce you to this prophetic time key that is essential in order for us to understand this vision. And that is simply this. You realize, friends, that in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day represents one literal year. And you can write down the scriptures for the evidence. In Ezekiel 4, 6, I've laid on you a day for each year. Numbers 14, 34, each day for a year. In a prophetic context, a prophetic day represents one literal year. So when it refers to 2,300 days, that's a prophetic day because it's in a prophetic context. So we use the prophetic time key, which makes it 2,300 literal years. 
And when we use that, all of a sudden now it becomes an end-time prophecy. Are you with me, yes or no? All right, so let's continue now and ask the next question. When does the 2,300 years begin, and when does it end? We can't know the ending unless we first know the beginning, that is where we need to count from. And so now God is going to give us the answer to that question as you follow the context as you go to the next chapter, Daniel chapter 9. What happens is this. When Daniel first received the 2,300-day prophecy, he himself did not understand it at first. He was baffled by it, in fact. And so if you feel like you're not understanding it, don't worry, you're in good company. Daniel didn't understand it either when he first, when he first heard it. However, when you follow the context, in chapter 9, the next chapter, Daniel is praying. That's what we ought to do when we don't understand something, amen? Don't, don't go and call your pastor and have him explain it. You go to God first, amen? You pray, and God will give you wisdom. As Daniel is praying, God sends the same angel, Gabriel, that gave the 2,300-day prophecy, he sends the same angel back to Daniel to give Daniel understanding of what he was so baffled by in the previous chapter. So here's the answer to the question, when do the 2,300 years begin and when do they end? And what God is going to do in Daniel chapter 9 is what He's always done in prophecy. He's going to repeat and what? And enlarge. He's going to repeat and give more details. Some of you are done with details at this point, but don't be done. God wants to give us more details. And so notice what the angel Gabriel says to Daniel. Daniel 9 Verse 24, God's repeating and enlarging, so here are more details. But don't get nervous, friends. We're going to break it down as simply as we can. But before we do that, why don't we all take a deep breath, shall we? Again. Helps clear the mind. One more time. Are you ready for more? Are you ready? Okay. I do that more for my sake than yours. Let me catch my breath. So when do the 2,300 years begin and end? Here's more details to the vision. Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks. Stop right there. A week is a measurement of time. So here's another time prophecy or more details concerning the time. Seventy weeks are determined. Stop right there. This word determined in the original language literally means cut off. What does it mean? Do you remember that expression? That's a judgment expression. Seventy weeks, this time period, is cut off, determined upon thy people. Who was Daniel's people? The Jews, of course. And upon thy holy city. What was the holy city? Jerusalem, of course. So 70 weeks are determined, cut off, and given to the Jews and Jerusalem. And what were they to do during this time period? It says to finish transgression and to make an end of sins. They had 70 weeks, prophetic weeks, to finish their transgressions, to make an end of their sins and unfaithfulness. The key word in this passage that helps us understand it is the word determined. The word determine 
simply means cut off. In other words, God is cutting off 70 prophetic weeks of probation and giving it to the Jewish nation as a time period for them to make an end of their sins. And why is that? Because you remember, friends, God made a special covenant with the Jewish nation. He said, I will be your God, you will be my people. He entrusted to them the oracles of God, the law of God, the, 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 the knowledge of God, and he wanted them to spread that knowledge throughout all the nations of the earth. But we find that, 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 that the covenant that God made with them was based upon their faithfulness. In other words, it wasn't an unconditional covenant. It was conditional. You can read that in Deuteronomy 28, and we'll study this more tomorrow night. But basically, the covenant with Israel went like this. Obey, and you will live. I will bless you, and I will make you the head and not the tail, and, and you'll be the light of the world. If you listen to me and follow me and have faith in me and trust in me, you're going to be blessed, and through you, all will be blessed. But if you disobey, you're going to die. If you go about and do your own thing, if you turn your back on me, I'm going to give you into the hands of your enemies. You see, the covenant God made with the nation of Israel was conditional in nature. And that's the reason why they were destroyed by Babylon during the time of Jeremiah and Daniel, because they were unfaithful to God. They tried to make their own righteousness. They disobeyed God, and, their, and they ignored the prophets. And as a result, the Babylonians came, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed their worship place and their sanctuary. And now Daniel is sitting in Babylonian captivity. Why? Because of the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel. So while they're in captivity, God sends the angel to give them hope. Don't worry, my children. I'm going to give you another opportunity. Can you say amen? Oh, God is a merciful God. Amen. I'm giving you 70 weeks, a time for you to put an end to your sins and to finish transgression. It was like God's final ultimatum for the Jewish nation. The key word is determined. It means cut off. 70 prophetic weeks of probation cut off for the Jewish nation. But here's the next logical question. Cut off from what? Cut off. From what? 70 weeks cut off from what? Well, friends, the only other time period 70 weeks could possibly be cut off from is the larger contextual 2,300-day prophecy. In other words, God is cutting off 70 weeks of this time period and giving it to the Jewish nation. It looks just like this. Notice on the screen. The first 70 weeks of the 2,300 days is cut off given to the Jewish nation as a time of their probation. Are you with me, yes or no? All right, so now the next question is this. How long is 70 prophetic weeks? Now we do the math. You brought your calculators? 70 weeks times 7 days per week equals, 70 times 7 equals 490 days, but are these literal days or prophetic days? They're prophetic days, and one prophetic day equals one literal year. So 490 prophetic days is 490 literal years. This is how long God gave the Jewish nation as a time of probation. 70 times 7 equals 490. By the way, you remember when Peter asked Jesus, how often shall I forgive my brother? Shall I forgive him seven times? And what was Jesus' answer? Not seven. 70 times 7. How much is that? 490. And that's interesting because that's how many years 
God gave to his people as a time of mercy and forgiveness and probation. And it's beginning to dawn upon us that, wow, the Bible is a lot, actually a lot deeper than we thought. Can you say amen? 70 times 7. Very interesting. And so now we go back to the, to the chart so, to visualize it. The first part of the 2,300-day prophecy, the first 70 weeks cut off, given to the Jewish nation. That's 490 years. And then you have 1,810 years left from the 2,300-day prophecy. We want to know when it ends because whenever it ends is when the hour of God's judgment begins, the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary. But we can't know the ending until we first know the beginning. So if we can know the beginning year, we can begin to count 2,300 years later and find out very simply when God's judgment in heaven actually began. Are you with me, yes or no? All right, so now we go back, and here's what Gabriel says. Are you ready? The next verse, verse 25. We're working through this step by step. Gabriel says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command or decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Stop right there. Remember, Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. As Gabriel was giving this vision to Daniel, Jerusalem is in ruins. But God is saying, don't worry, Daniel. There's going to be a decree, a command that will enable you and your people to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And those decrees, those commands to restore Jerusalem was given by the Persian kings during the days of, of Nehemiah and Ezra, amongst others. Remember, after Babylon, Medo-Persia ruled. And under the Persian kings, God's people were permitted to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the sanctuary, the walls and the streets. And so Gabriel is saying, whenever, whatever year those decrees, those commands are issued, that's when you begin to count. Notice, we go back. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command or decree to restore and build Jerusalem until who? Messiah the Prince. Tell me, who's the Messiah, friends? It's Jesus. Do you know why we're studying this tonight? Because it points us to Jesus. Prophecy only has value as it points us to Jesus. Amen? It's not just a bunch of dates and irrelevant historical facts, friends. No, the reason why it's so important, because this is one of the most Christ-centered prophecies that point us to the true Messiah that came into this world right on time. So notice, from the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That's 69 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. So between the command to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah the Prince, there's going to be 69 weeks, prophetic weeks that will pass. Then notice, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be what? Cut off, but not for himself. This prophecy points to the cross. That's why it's so important. So let's notice this chart so we can visualize what Gabriel is saying. We're talking about the 70 prophetic weeks of probation given to the Jewish nation. It begins at the decree that gave the Jews permission to rebuild and finish the building of Jerusalem. 
And then 69 prophetic weeks later brings us to the time of Messiah, the prince. Now, according to Ezra 7 and verse 13, as well as historical documents, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was issued in the year 457 B.C. In what year? Now, there were various different decrees given by different kings, Cyrus and, and, and Darius, as well as Artaxerxes, but the one decree that enabled the Jews to actually finish the building of it, like what the angel Gabriel said, was the decree by Artaxerxes in 457 B.C. That's the year that we begin to count the 70 weeks and the 2,300-day or year prophecy. So now we have a beginning point. So now all we have to do is some math, maybe a little bit of uh, addition but, and a little bit of multiplication. Notice, the decree was issued in 457 B.C. 69 weeks later brings us to the time of Messiah. How long is 69 prophetic weeks? Let's do the math now. You take 69 weeks times how many days per week? Seven equals 483 prophetic days which are literal years. How long is 69 prophetic weeks? It's 483 prophetic days, which are literal years. So we take that number, plug it in right there. So now all we have to do is add 457 B.C. plus 483 years later brings us to the year A.D. 27 when the Bible says Messiah would come upon the scene. Now, what happened in A.D. 27? The, what does the word Messiah mean? It means the anointed one. What does it mean? So the question is this. When was Jesus anointed Messiah? Well, we don't have to guess because the Bible tells us. In Acts 10, 37 and 38, it says that God did what? Anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. And when did that happen? When he was baptized in the River Jordan. You remember? The Father said, this is my beloved Son. The Spirit of God came down in the form of, the, of a dove, and Jesus was anointed to begin his public ministry at his baptism. Now, what year was Jesus baptized? According to the prophecy, it has to happen in AD 27. Well, what year was he baptized? We don't have to guess because the Bible tells us. In Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and verse 21, it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized, and while he prayed, the heavens were open. The Bible is specific. It tells us that Jesus was baptized in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Friends, would you like to guess, according to history, what year was the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar? It was exactly A.D. 27. Jesus was baptized right on time. Amen? Some of you are wondering, why did he wait so long before he began to preach and do his public ministry? Why did he spend so long in the carpenter's shop? It's because he had to fulfill the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 in order to be the true Messiah. Amen? And so he's baptized right on time, and he's baptized. He begins his ministry. He begins to preach. Notice what he preaches, Mark 1, 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled. What time is he talking about? When he said that, he was referring to the prophecy we're studying tonight, friends. 
The 69th week is here. The time is fulfilled. Basically what Christ was saying, I am the Messiah of Daniel's prophecy. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus started his ministry right on time. Can you say amen? The time is fulfilled. He begins to preach. He begins to heal. He begins to, 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 to teach. That's what the Bible is referring to. So we go back to the chart to visualize it again. We repeat and enlarge. Seventy prophetic weeks of probation given to the Jewish nation for them to keep the covenant, put an end to their sins. It begins at the decree to rebuild Jerusalem issued by Artaxerxes in 457 B.C. Sixty-nine prophetic weeks later, 483 literal years later, brings us to A.D. 27, Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, baptized in the River Jordan. He begins His public ministry. That leads us to the 69th week. Now, how many weeks left do we have in the 70 weeks? We just have one prophetic week left. Here's 69, friends. We have one prophetic week left. And friends, how long is one prophetic week? Seven years. And friends, in this last seven-year period, we find some amazing prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. In this seven-year period, some amazing things that Jesus does to fulfill Bible prophecy. And before we talk about that, let me just ask you a very, uh, very simple question. Tell me, friends, what number comes after 69? What number? 70? Anyone disagree with that? You're telling me that 70 comes after 69? Now, when does it come after 69? Does it come immediately after 69, or does it take a, lot, a while? Oh, it comes immediately, 69 and then 70. <laughs> You're looking at me like I'm crazy, of course. But listen, friends, you realize that many people don't believe that 70 comes after 69? Because what many people have done is they've taken this last prophetic week, this seven-year period, and they have separated it from the 70 weeks, and they've thrown it all the way into the future, and they call it a seven-year tribulationary period. And they say that during this time, Antichrist will show up, make a covenant with the Jews, causing the sacrifices in Jerusalem to cease. And books and movies, an entire series have been made by popular theologians to teach this. But remind me, friends, what number comes after 69? 70, friends. This last seven-year period is not a future event referring to the Antichrist, but it is a historical event that points us so clearly to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let me prove it to you from the context. The 70th week, what happens in this week? Notice what it says in verse 26. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with, the fl with, with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. So it's saying that sometime after Messiah shows up, is baptized sometime after that, that he's going to be cut off. He's going to be crucified. 
And then sometime after that, that same sanctuary and city is going to be destroyed again. There's going to be wards and a flood. That refers to when the Romans came and destroyed the sanctuary and Jerusalem all over again. But then notice verse 27. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for how long? One week, friends. Question, who is he? that's confirming the covenant for that last 70th week. Friends, it cannot be Antichrist. It must be Jesus Christ, the one that made the covenant with Israel to begin with. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 8. Notice carefully, it says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister to the who? And the circumcision, that's, that's a reference to the Jews, friends. A minister to the circumcision for the truth of God to do what? Confirm the promises made to the Father. Another word for promise is covenant, friends. That's the reason why when Jesus began his public ministry, he said, I am not come except to the, house, the, to, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus did not spend his time amongst the Gentiles. He worked solely for the Jewish nation. Why? Because he knew that they had one more week that the covenant was good. So he appealed to them. He came to his own, appealing for them to repent and believe the gospel. He's confirming the promises, the covenant made to the fathers for one more week. He's confirming it, friends. But then notice what happened. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the when? Middle of the week, he, that is Christ, will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. In the middle of that last seven-year period, he, Christ, will put an end to the sacrificial offerings. What does this mean? Let's go to the chart. We visualize it. We're in this last 70th week. In the middle of the week, what is the middle of seven? Half of seven is three and a half. How long was Jesus' public ministry? Three and a half years, friends. Jesus worked. He was baptized in 27. He works and labors for three and a half years. But then in the middle of the week, he, Christ, puts an end to sacrifice and offering. How did he do it? By being cut off on the cross for us. The Bible says he came to his own, and his own received him not. They did not want freedom from, from sin. They wanted freedom from Rome. They didn't want spiritual grace. They wanted earthly glory. And despite the pleadings of the Messiah, they crucified him. And on the cross, after three and a half years in the middle of the week, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And then he cried out those three words. He said, it is finished. What is finished? Sacrifices and offerings. No longer do you have to slay a lamb anymore. It is finished. He puts an end to the sacrificial sanctuary services. In other words, friends, in the middle of the 70th week, Christ the Messiah would bring to the end of the sacrificial services. He would do it because he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And friends, on that day, it was the day of the Passover in the year A.D. 31. It was in the right year, the right month, the right day. 
And it was at the exact hour that the Passover lamb was to be slain. At the ninth hour, friends, is when Jesus breathed his last. He said, it is finished. And the very moment he died, the Bible says in Mark 15, 38, that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom, not bottom to top, unearthly hand could have done that. It was torn from top to bottom because God himself tore the veil signifying the end of the sanctuary, the earthly sanctuary and the sacrificial services. It was the Passover at the time of the evening sacrifice. At the ninth hour the lamb was to be killed and the priest was there at the sanctuary about to slay that little innocent animal but the very moment he was about to do it, a great earthquake took place. It shook the knife from the priest's hand and the little barnyard animal was able to go free he no longer has to die. Why? Because out on Mount Calvary, on an old rugged cross, there was another lamb that was shedding his blood at that very moment. And when that took place, type had meant anti-type. The shadow meant the substance. And as a result, you and I no longer have to slay a lamb to be forgiven. All we have to do is get on our knees and say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. Have mercy upon me. And he applies his cleansing blood to us. Amen. It is finish. It's not talking about the Antichrist, friends, making a covenant with the Jews in the future and causing the sacrifices in a rebuilt temple to, be, to cease. No, friends. We're going to talk more about that tomorrow night, and I do believe that there's going to be a tribulationary period. Yes, yes, of course, but you can't find it from Daniel 9. This is a prophecy pointing to Jesus and the hope we have in Him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And all we have to do is pray, friends. We come boldly to the throne of, throne of grace, not through, the, through an earthly priest, but through our great high priest, Jesus. Not with the blood of a lamb, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And that's good news tonight. These verses predict that Christ the Messiah would die by crucifixion in the 14th day of the first Jewish month in the year A.D. 31. And it wasn't just the right year, A.D. 31, and the right month and the right day, the Passover. It was at the exact hour, friends, the ninth hour when Jesus breathed his last. And God the Father tore the veil, confirming that that date was the fulfillment of this prophecy. If that's clear, would you please say amen? We're almost finished. Let's go back to the chart to visualize. We repeat and enlarge everything we've learned tonight. We're talking about the 70 prophetic weeks of probation given to the Jewish nation to, to, uh, as a time to put an end to their sins and keep the covenant. Begins in the year 457 B.C. when the decree was issued that gave the Jews permission to finish the rebuilding of the city. 69 prophetic weeks later, 483 literal years later, Brings us to the time of the anointing of Messiah, A.D. 27. Jesus baptized, begins his public ministry. Seven years left, in the middle of the week, after three and a half years of loving ministry, the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself, because he never sinned before. He was cut off for you and me. Do you remember the word cut off? It's a judgment expression. Jesus took our judgment upon himself. Jesus took our shame and our guilt so that we could have his life and his blessing. Amen? Cut off, not for himself. Praise God. Now, how many years left do we have after the cross? Three and a half years left that the covenant is still good. And that's the reason why 
Jesus said to the disciples when he resurrected, he said in Acts 1.8, go to Jerusalem first, then Judea, then Samaria, then all the uttermost parts of the world. Why did Jesus say go to Jerusalem first? Because they still had three and a half years, friends. And so the, the apostles preached on the day of Pentecost, and they continued their labors amongst in Jerusalem. The time was almost finished. And if they did not repent, in A.D. 34, probation would close upon them as a nation, not as a people, but as a nation, not as individuals, but as a nation. And it would go to the Gentiles. It would go to those who would accept it. And friends, that's exactly what took place. What happened in A.D. 34? According to this prophecy, God's covenant with the Jewish nation would end in A.D. 34. Well, what happened then? What event marked its end? A few things happened. Here's one. Stephen, the deacon of the New Testament church, is preaching to the Sanhedrin, the highest court of the Jewish nation, the religious leaders. He's preaching to them, and, and he's going over the, the covenant, the history of the covenant. And when you study Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, he's basically presenting a legal indictment against the Sanhedrin. He's going through the covenant lawsuit. You study the nature of the message, going through the history, that was always what took place whenever a lawsuit was brought before someone, and that's what Stephen is doing. And the high priest, he understood what Stephen was doing. And he tore his garment. And they rushed upon Stephen. And they stoned Stephen to death. They did not want to hear it. They silenced the messenger of God. And do you remember when Stephen was being stoned? All of a sudden, he saw heaven open and he saw the Son of Man stand at the right hand of the throne of God. That vision of, of Christ sitting at, uh, standing at the throne is what marked the close of their probation. Whenever Jesus stands at the throne, judgment takes place. So there was a heavenly sign in that year. And so what happened? Four specific things. Stephen is stoned for preaching Christ. The Jewish leaders reject the gospel openly and corporately. Immediately after that, the gospel goes like wildfire to the Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 8 and 9, the apostle Paul is converted as, a, as an apostle to the Gentiles. The Samaritans are now filled with the Spirit, and it just goes like wildfire. That was the end of the 70 weeks. And if that is clear, if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, they can be saved as individuals, of course. But as far as being the representatives of God, now God uses the New Testament church, which is made of Jew and Gentile, to represent Him. No longer the literal nation. He now uses the spiritual nation, the New Testament church. And friends, we'll talk more about that tomorrow night in gross detail. So now we go back to the bigger context as we begin to close tonight. We're talking about the 2,300-day prophecy that points to the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary and the final judgment, the hour of God's judgment beginning in heaven. The first 70 weeks cut off, given to the Jewish nation, beginning in 457 B.C., ending in A.D. 34. Now, how many years left do we have in the 2,300-year prophecy? All we have is 1,810 years left, friends. So now it's just a matter of addition. 1810 plus 34 A.D. equals the year 1844, where the Bible points us to as the, when the sanctuary in heaven will be cleansed. 
and thus the final day of atonement and the hour of God's judgment will take place. Friends, according to prophecy, it was in this year, 1844, that Jesus would step into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary to begin a special cleansing work, an investigative judgment. And friends, we don't know how long that will continue to last because no man knows the exact day or hour of his return. We don't know when he's going to be finished. But this prophecy points to, to the reality that we're living in the end. And we need to make every decision with the end in mind. That's Revelation's two-minute warning, friends. It's not a literal two-minute. It's a proverbial two-minute. Jesus wants us to know that he's coming soon. There's no time to waste. We need to get serious. We need to make every decision with eternity in mind. It, it, it's as if we, we were on the one-yard line. And the question is, what play are you going to call on the one-yard line? We're right there at the end zone, friends. What play are you going to call? You better make sure it's the right play. You better make sure that you get your call from Jesus. Amen? Seconds are ticking away at the clock of time. The redemption story is almost finished, and soon God will say, it is finished. It is done. You see, friends, all the numbers add up perfectly. Jesus was born on time baptized on time, died on time, and he's coming back right on time. We don't know when it is, but it must be, must be close, and I want to be ready. How about you? Amen? How shall we respond to the message of God's judgment? Oh, friends, remember, it's not scary news. It's gospel. It's good news, and here's a few other reasons why. Hebrews 7.25 says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us. Friends, Jesus not only died for us as the Lamb, but he ever lives for us as our great high priest. Yes, it's important for us to understand the power of the Lamb, but that's just part of the gospel. Many churches are just preaching part of it. We need to preach the whole thing. He died, but he also lives for us. Amen? And that's why it's good news. And then 1 John 2 verse 1 says, My little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. And if any man sin." We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Oh, friends, I'm so thankful. It's, it's not God's will that we continue to sin, but if we do, we have an advocate. Another word for advocate is lawyer, attorney. His name is Jesus, friends, and he's a good attorney. He's a good lawyer. He doesn't charge much. In fact, it's absolutely free. And no matter how bad your case may be, Jesus will take your case and he's a lawyer that has never lost a case. Your life may be messed up. Even tonight, you may be filled with, with issues and, and sins and addictions and whatnot like I used to be as a druggie 15 years ago. It doesn't matter. Bring your case to the great lawyer, Jesus Christ, and you can stand in the judgment with absolute confidence because he's a lawyer that never lost a case. You know why? Because the judge always listens to the lawyer. The judge and lawyer, they have a good relationship. They have a father-son relationship. Amen? In fact, it gets even better, folks. Notice this. In John 5, 22, it says, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Listen, friends. The Ancient of Days, God the Father sits upon the throne presiding as the judge, but he doesn't really judge anyone. He judges through his Son. In other words, he says, Son, whatever you say, I'm going to go with it. 
Why? Because it was the son that walked in our shoes and he understands. And so how would you like to go to court and stand before a judge that's also your lawyer, that's there to defend you? That's what we have in the judgment above. Amen? That's why judgment is good news. All we have to do, friends, is trust our lawyer, put our terrible case in his hands. Before the throne of God, we have a friend that understands. He promises to save us if we trust him. Today, we've covered a lot of information. I'm not going to expect you to remember everything. We have four handouts tonight that will help you out. But let me summarize everything we studied tonight with two points. You may not remember all the details, but how many of you think you can remember at least two things? You got a few brain cells left, amen? <laughs> two things, friends. Number one, here's what you take home tonight. Number one, since 1844, we have been living in the hour of God's judgment. But number two, we need not be afraid of judgment because we have a lawyer that has never lost a case. Can you remember that? Tonight, what do we need to do practically in light of this? Remember what the people did on the outside of the sanctuary when the high priest was cleansing on the inside? They were working in harmony. As the priest, high priest was cleansing the sanctuary of the record, the people on the outside were cleansing the soul sanctuary by confession and repentance and searching their hearts. So what do we need to do now that we know where Jesus is and what he's doing for us in the sanctuary above? We need to work in harmony with our great high priest, friends, by searching our hearts and repenting and confessing our sins, allowing Jesus to take our sins from us. That's what we need to do. And the reason why we need to search our hearts is because the Bible says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We don't even know our own hearts, friends. The worst deception is self-deception. We can be like Peter saying to Jesus, Lord, everyone is going to leave you but not me. I'm ready to die for you tonight. And before that night was finished, Peter forsook Christ and denied him three times. You see, friends, we can't be confident in our own commitments. We don't know our hearts. That's why we need to search it and say, God, what is in my life? Help me to see me for who I really am. If there's anything that is not pleasing in my life, would you please take it from me? Put it in the sanctuary above and blot it out in the investigative judgment. And so here's our prayer as we close. My last verse. Psalms 139, verse 23 and 24. Let's pray this prayer together, shall we? The Bible says, all together, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Is that your prayer? Tonight as we close, how many of you want to accept Jesus not only as the lamb that died for you, but the great high priest that lives for you? Is that your prayer? If so, would you please pray with me? Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for the Holy Spirit that has helped to make this message clear in our minds. We thank you so much for the good news of judgment, that it's not something we need to fear, 
Lord, we recognize that we need a lawyer. We cannot defend ourselves. All our good works are like filthy rags. We need you, Lord. And we thank you that you have walked in our shoes and you understand the difficulties we have faced in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to trust you as the great lawyer, the great high priest. We pray, Lord, that as we stand in the shadow of your perfection, that you give us confidence and assurance that we will pass the judgment without any issues. Please, Lord, make us ready for your return. Ripen us for that great harvest day. We want our lives to be sweet, ripened by the fruit of the Spirit. Give us this experience, we pray, and bring us back tomorrow as we continue part two of this message, as we talk about Israel and prophecy. Please, Lord, help us to return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.